from Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network. This is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I am Tyler Jones, slash T.A. Jones, a poet and writer, sometimes occasionally like music playlister for Central Sauce. With me, I have Ryan Gore. Hey, what's up? It's Ryan, hashtag smoking on that lazy pack, hashtag RP Bozo, <laughs> writer for Central Sauce, and uh, for Dice and Squidby Animation Magazine. Um, if I'm going to plug real quick, I'll plug a piece I did for Squiggy recently about the Warner Discovery stuff, the maxing a lot of animation, the maxing a lot of uh, diverse storytelling, and I talked about how businessmen should not be in charge of art. Please go check that out because I'm quite proud of that one. But yeah, happy to be here on the pod. All right, and we also have my guy from the Midwest, originally, Brennan Hill. What's up, guys? Brendan Hill, um, writer, contributor at Central Sauce, uh, freelance journalist at OK Player. I have a lot I could actually plug. I guess I've been busy lately. I'm going to just throw one out there, though. I recently uh, covered the Restoring Artistic Protections Act, uh, which is a new bill in the U.S. legislature that is meant to limit the use of rap lyrics in criminal trials. Um, I sort of broke down how it would function, talked about the history of it, you know, why it's necessary, um, and sort of what the next steps would be, even if the bill is signed into a law. So uh, it's really informative, uh, sort of important topic right now. You can check that out on my website at authory.com slash Brandon Hill. That's just author with a Y. Great piece. All right, all right, all right. Um, the only thing I can really plug has been my poetry that has been being published lately um, in literary magazines, which, hey, what's up? Um, oh, yeah. Which, which uh, the first you could probably check out in Hyacinth Review on the theme of Divine. It's called Heaven Loves Black. You can check that out on their website. Um, you can also find it on my Twitter at Taj, T-A-J, the poet, 95, um, or on my Instagram, Taj, dot, the, dot, poet. Um, I also have three poems that you'll be able to like uh, see this week. Um, so yeah, gentlemen, I'm going to ask a super quick question before we get into this episode. So just sim- simple, very simple. What is one piece of music you've listened to this week? You're going to limit me to one? Yeah, I'm just, it's just one. Just oh one. my God. It's we're a, we're it's short a on time. Okay. What's, what's, um, what's, what's, right, what's in right, your head? Right, all right. Uh, we're going to go with. Um, the Rock Marciano album with The Alchemist because I have, I guess, been listening to that a little more than the JID album. Ha, got my two. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a short listen, about like 38 minutes. Um, really like lounge, jazzy kind of record. Like I was talking about this earlier before we started recording. Like uh, Rock Marciano is sort of rapping from this perspective. You feel like he's just kind of sitting back in a chair. You know, very deep, um, very rhythmic, very very sort of like slow raps that mesh really well with this kind of like laid back jazz sound that the alchemist is really putting out super sharp album um super short makes like a great great listen for like a lot of different windows throughout the day i've really been giving that a lot of time 
the beat the beats are crazy the beat uh, especially daddy kane with the uh, song with action bronson that's probably my favorite off the album liddy ryan my guy i'm gonna go just stick with one song that i've been just playing over and over and over again and it's a classic it's uh bound a sample people will recognize from bound 2 by kanye and um mm-hmm. a boy is a gun by tyler the creator uh yeah by the ponderosa twins plus one it's just gorgeous in it like <laughs> if you just listen to that song like obviously a song discovered discovered like through it being sampled but you listen to it and you just understand why it captured two musicians you know you think like oh you know you look at songs that have been sampled again and again and you think why is this song spoken to so many people like so many parts of this song spoken to deep people through generations. You listen to Bound and you just get it immediately. Like there's just something in that song that's like special and magical and the reason I love music. So yeah, I'll go with that one track. All right. And for me, since uh, Brandon Tonic took my answer with Jaddy because I've been playing that all week. But um, my actual answer is to give a shout out to a, probably a very underlooked project as well is Dream Lobby Volume 1 by Devin Morrison. It is an instrumental album. Um, anyone who's reminiscent of, let's say, 90s sitcoms or even like 90s TV shows, it very much so sounds like the transitional music or even intros that you would have to 90s shows. It is very R&B. It almost sounds like you're, once again, in a lounge or just in an elevator, but it's also very peaceful and relaxing. As a preschool teacher, which, hey guys, that's what I do um, every now and then, <laughs> it's also the something I've been playing for the kids. It's been fantastic. So, Yeah. All right, guys, but just want starting off with this with this episode, we want to intro our episode with what we will be covering. So in this episode of Central Sauce, we have the once again, the three amigos back for talking about video game music. In this uh, uh, is this the third is this the third time too, guys? Is this the third time we're done? Or is it like the fourth yeah. or fifth? Yeah, maybe? this uh, is the third entry. Even- this is the Smash Bros. Brawl of the video game music. <laughs> <laughs> I love oh, it. Let's not, let's not introduce tripping. Let's not. <laughs> and as you guys sometimes know, whenever we do the VGM, uh, kind of like pods, a little bit more laid back, a little bit more chill, because um, while we're informing you guys, it's also something we're all very, very passionate about. But to intro our pieces real quick, um, we, ha- we have What Happened to Memorable Game Music by Game Score Fanfare. Um, that is my article. Then we have, or excuse me, video, because these are also for the first time, all first time we've all brought video essays. What's up, guys? Um, the next piece is the anxiety of Celeste and its music, also by Game Score Fanfare. <laughs> also a first on the show <laughs> that we've done that by um, a different piece by the same person. And then lastly, um, from Brandon, we have storytelling through music in Hollow Knight by 8-Bit Music Theory. Stay tuned for bugs and fascism. It's going to be a great conversation. <laughs> It'll be a very long rant, which I'm sure you guys will probably have edited down, thanks to our lovely Charlie, um, our group leader. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're actually kicking off today with my article, um, or excuse me, video essay, um, called What Happened to Memorable Game Music by Game Score Fanfare. Um... The reason I chose this article is one besides the name of it that's which immediately grabbed my attention was I do think that's been a 
critique in music, not just in video games, but in overall, people are saying everything sounds the same. Everything's nostalgia. Even me and my roommates recently, we have we keep finding ourselves in conversations about nostalgia and like, what's good? What's good now? Oh, it was better back in the day. And I think sometimes people can get, once again, getting that little nostalgia, little blanket. If anyone's seen South Park, it's like those member berries. Oh, member, you member, you member, you remember the good stuff. And I think game score actually breaks it down pretty casually, but also gives a, once again, extremely detailed explanation of how melody was a big driving force of older Mm -hmm. games. Melody sticks in the brain. It's easy. Not only more so it sticks in the brain, it sticks to the heart. Um, and he was explaining how a lot of games today use more ambient, atmospheric, and even, frankly, you can say moody um, scores for their music, which has also been derived from the, you could say, men, a mixing of the worlds of cinema with video games and how like those worlds are not only like they're combining on the creative level, they're also combining on the the regular level as well when it comes to like the actual music composition. And hey, that was a dog. <laughs> um, what was uh, I, I can probably get into a little bit more um, once I get y'all's opinions. Which let's start off with Ryan. What did you think of this video essay? Yeah, I thought it was really fascinating because when I look at the title. My answer that I make for myself in my head, oh, I was like, oh, because of cinema. Like, because mm. games are trying to be cinema because of the blending of Hollywood and video games. But what Game School Fanfare does really well is kind of present that and say, yeah, it's true, but there's so much more to it. And I think it's a really good skill to be able to understand what your audience is about to think, you know? Like, when you said the name of the video being what happened to video game music expecting people to go a certain way and using that against them almost to kind of bring them to a deeper level. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, I also thought, like, throughout the video, one of my first thoughts this was, Nintendo is the exception here. And I love that <laughs> you brought up Super Mario Odyssey because Nintendo don't focus on cinematic experiences. They try to create family-friendly experiences which does lean more towards the melodic, memorable kind of music. And I love that it brings up my favorite track from Mario Odyssey 2. Um, that track is just crazy. And I didn't know Koji Kondo did it, um, but it's lovely. Um, but yeah, I thought that was really cool because you get the lined up thinking with what the audience thinks, but also you get to subvert what they think is going to happen in the video too. And it takes a lot of skill to walk that tightrope you know but yeah that's that's what i thought yeah and i think i think one thing you know when you mentioned nintendo sort of being an exception um because they try to create family friendly game experiences i think there's another part to it too where nintendo seems to want to create these more these game experiences that are almost more reminiscent of arcade games um and i think they've gone with the switch they've gone even more increasingly in that direction like a lot of their games are very well crafted like more sort of repetitive based experiences um, compared to like the large cinematic story, massive storytelling experiences that you get on like the Xbox or the PlayStation console games. Um, I mean, I think a good example of that, you can even see that in Pikmin 3, 
as compared to even Pikmin 2, that they've gone like further in that direction of like a more repetitive, more refined, like arcade experience. And when we talked, or when he talked about the, the cinematic influence um, being part of the reasons that like this memorable game music has sort of gone away in, 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 in its memorability, you can see that in like the design of a cinematic experience where every, you know, he talks about how every single character needs to have their own musical theme. Every new area needs to have its musical theme. Um, there needs to be more input into the ambient atmosphere, the mood and the feeling. But when you have a, a more repetitive, more arcade sort of style of game, um, that's where you get those really impactful like melodies, you know, that sort of blend with the sound effects of actually playing the game. Like that's a more arcade experience to me than it is like a cinematic experience. And you also mentioned how, you know, the the titling of the video and then sort of answering that question right off the bat is a really good way to intro it. Because initially, like when I read what happened to memorable game music, my I went into the video even sort of combative, right? Even sort of like, well, what happened? Like it didn't it didn't go anywhere. There's still fantastic game scores. But then he, he really under that. yeah, and he un- really right off the bat, and he underlines the specifics of how he's talking about what happened to memorable game music. Like the repetitive nature, the memory nature, the melodies that get stuck in your head. And he even outlines it as like, not, not like it, it off the bat has like a negative connotation to say like, oh, what happened to this? But he doesn't talk about it with a negative connotation. He just acknowledges that like, yes, this is something that's no longer there. Let's talk about what happened to it. And I sort of asked myself too initially, like, and I, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you guys as well, but I was asked myself like, okay, what are some of the most memorable pieces of video game music? What are some of the most memorable soundtracks that pop in my head? Like what are the the songs or the melodies that I can literally hear and still repeat? And the first thoughts I had were uh, games like Pokemon and Zelda as the most mm-hmm. obvious. And then also, I don't know if you guys ever played Fantasy Star on the GameCube. <laughs> Probably put hundreds of hours into that with my brothers so I can still hear like the menu music and like the walking around the central hub area. But then as the music or as the uh, as the video continued and he showed a clip from near uh, Automata where the characters are like walking into this carnival setting and there are these fireworks coming in the background. And I had this immediate like, oh, shit, like that is one of the most memorable examples of video game music I've ever played. Even like you didn't even hear the music in the clip that he showed, but you just see the scene and I heard the music and got the feeling like that you get when you're sort of in that section of the game. And I think that that speaks to the same thing he said about, um, I forget the game, but he talks about how he doesn't remember the specific melodies of this one game, but he remembers the sense and the feeling of adventure and, and the nostalgia and those things that come back based on the music. So there's sort of two avenues that like memorability has gone into in video game music. And, and to me, they're sort of like in line with like, the arcade experience and the cinematic experience, right? If you can kind of sort game music into those two kinds of categories. So what are, you, you know, what are some of the most... together as well. Yeah, what are some of the most memorable soundtracks that you guys think of just off the top of your head? I know, Ryan, you wrote a whole thing about the... Yeah, Ryan, the little root little um, yeah. theme, so... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Pokemon Emerald, absolutely, I'll talk about straight away. Um, Super Mario 64, like, one of... That 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 was the first generation where the sound chip wasn't a thing, where you could go 
to more places with music and it really just opened up like okay we started putting games on cds there's more memory even though 64 wasn't on cd but you know there's more memory to just make music bigger now and mario odyssey i mean mario 64 is the perfect game soundtrack like even though they repeat a lot of the um themes it's probably the reason why they stick in so much right because you have the, the hub world, one of the first games that ever had a hub world, and you have the uh, castle theme, then you have the Bob on Battlefield, which is repeated like four times in the game, and you have the underwater theme. It's just like, yeah, that, that thing, it kept the spirit of the last couple generations. It's like, the video mentions how innovation comes from limitation. And even though there's less limitation on the Nintendo 64, Mario 64 acted like there was limitations in the way that it designed its soundtrack. Which is why that one sticks out so much and why I love it so much. And so, oh yeah, any Pokemon game, any Mario game, outside of that, it's something we're going to get to later, it's Celeste. So I'll save that for now. Yeah, I would say... I, I, all, everything I remember right now, let's say if I don't remember the game per se, a lot of turn-based games where mm. uh, have very central JRPGs. Games. JRPGs, especially. Um, like, for example, like if, I w- if, you, if we talk about Pokemon for a second, right? Because I was going to bring yeah. up Pokemon. The Pokemon theme is known so internationally now that for each new installment, they usually mix it up and they add some type of, uh, let's say, a new musical element to it, whether it's an instrument, or they try to re- uh, remix it to where it's for the new region. But there's still the same core melody, as they, as he was talking about before, that core melody that's memorable and pulls at the heartstrings every single time, right? Um, it's, and I still know like every single turn, let's say the turn based music for Pokemon, Fire Red and Leaf Green and how that's even incorporated into other games. Another, uh, another turn based and, but also somewhat free play JRPG, but was for the Game Boy. Um, I think, excuse me, the Game Boy Advance and Game Boy SP especially is the Mega Man Battle Network series. It's... It's a very central theme that they kept from game one to game six. That would have very slight variations, but it was so well adopted. They even like adapted parts of it into the Star Force series that came after it. Um, the keeping of melody is important. And Ryan, as you were saying before, um, they mentioned that, oh, limitation can breed... Can, will breed creativity they also once again subverted their own argument again by saying yeah that doesn't always that's not always the case creativity can be brought through new innovation as well but once again referencing the super mario odyssey they kept it simple and relied on melody that's what was the driving force throughout um throughout the project and what made that song that even you love right from that particular game of super mario odyssey the most memorable one because it was also somewhat nostalgic but was driven by melody too yeah, and I think you you mentioned like the limitations of like the eight bit chip, the sixteen bit chip, and this this video does a really good job of sort of like giving a brief overview of the history of like the actual mechanical limitation limitations, um, which we have talked about before on previous episodes of like the video game music um, episodes of the podcast. But this video I think really gives one of the best like visual representations of those limitations by actually breaking down like the shapes of the waveforms. You know, it goes into like the first one being like 
the classic, the sound you think of that's sort of like the bells and the whistles, you know, the dings, the real driving force of the melody. And then it goes into like the triangular waveforms, which are used more as like a drum or a bass pattern. And it really breaks down like you, these are the tools you have to create the game's music as well as all of the sound effects, right? And when you sort of have that, like, you know, it, it, it makes you need to create a melody that is repetitive and gets stuck in your head, but also doesn't become, you know, excruciatingly obnoxious, especially, and we're going to talk about this more in Celeste too, but especially in a game that is difficult, you know, games a lot of times are meant to be challenging and yet relaxing at the same time. And a lot of that environment, you know, a lot of that contradiction is controlled through the game's music. Absolutely. Um, I will say, gentlemen, real quick, do we have any final thoughts on the article? Yeah, just one one uh, sort of music theory theme that gets brought up in this article that we're actually going to talk about throughout the rest of this podcast episode um, is, is leitmotif, right? And it's I'm glad that like this video finally put a word to it because we've talked about it also in, in previous episodes and especially the best example of it, period, is probably the Breath of the Wild video. Um, that we brought to like, I think the very first episode and what leitmotif is, is sort of an answer to how to make memorable melodies, not repetitive and annoying. And that's by making changes to a melody, um, that are sort of indicate that sort of indicate changes to the environment. Um, they, the example they use in this video, we're going to talk about in more detail when we get into hollow Knight. but hollow Knight is also a good example of it. Because you'll have a basic melody that defines, um, you know, a certain area of the game. But then things will be added and taken away from that melody based on how the environment or like how the player is responding to the environment. Like you'll have a basic melody and then you enter a combat room and it'll add those frantic strings. You know, you have a basic melody and then you meet another character who you have a discussion with. And then that character's melody theme kind of underlays with the... Um, you know, the environmental melody. In Breath of the Wild, it's even more reactive um, to the point that that game can hardly even be described as like having a soundtrack more than it has sort of like a living interactive soup of music. Um, and we go into more detail on that in Video Game Music Volume 1. But it's nice to like have the music theory word for that now as leitmotif um, when we've sort of discussed that now over several yeah. episodes. Yeah, just to be absolutely clear, leitmotif is that bass melody. The bass melody is the leitmotif, and then you build on the leitmotif depending on the environmental uh, influences. But yeah, it's really cool. It makes the music <laughs> breathe. It makes the game breathe and come to life as well, just just mm-hmm. like in Breath of the Wild. Um, so, Ryan, any closing thoughts as well? Um, I just wanted to shout out just the immediate link between cinema and games because it is difficult to ignore i think the images on the screen really made a difference too because he showed like avengers movies and then showed the avengers game and i think that is a wider thing happening in the games industry is the ip apocalypse we're living in just meaning that (laughs) games and movies are just more intertwined than ever and that is definitely just a factor here you know so many of the examples of soundtracks in this game come from movies the the one of the first ones he brought up was the batman thing where you open the game and it's just a moody atmosphere you know and that cinematic link is definitely there and i think um 
the fact that the way, the way that he built on that, but also just very much acknowledged it, was was really important. I think. All right. Well, our wonderful listeners, that was what happened to memorable memorable game music by Game Score Funfair. Now, to go into Ryan's article, which is also by Game um, Score Fanfare, <laughs> The Anxiety of Celeste and Its Music, let's let our guy take it away. Yeah, so the premise of this one is pretty self-explanatory from the um, Bunzel. It's an analysis on Lena Rain's Celeste soundtrack and how it represents the themes of anxiety in the game. Um, I thought that the analysis here was excellent particularly when bringing up the idea I'm sure Brandon alluded to earlier of eustress and distress. I was not familiar with any of these concepts before and it uncovered uncovered this deeper layer of the game for me, realising how Celeste basically toggles you between eustress and distress throughout the whole game. Eustress being positive, rewarding and inspiring stress and distress being horrible, disturbing, scary stress. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that there was two versions of stress, one that <laughs> motivates you and the other one that uh, breaks you down. And I think it's it that knowledge is a really useful tool for the analysis, but it's also just the key to understanding Celeste as a game. Uh, Celeste isn't like an incredibly cryptic game the way that Hollow Knight is that we'll get onto, but there's definite subtext to the game that's difficult to piece together. And I think this idea of eustress and de-stress just completely unlocks the meaning for me. And yeah, I thought it was brilliant. So I'll throw it to you guys. Tyler, were you familiar with the terms? And what do you think of when you think of positive stress? So I was not familiar with the terms. That's tough. Um, uh, but at the same time, though, I kind of, I, I guess you would say it's one of those, like you go to school and you learn a lot of things. You're like, oh, I knew that already. Now there's just a term for it. I understood the idea of it. Just didn't. I was like, oh, there's an actual term for that. Um, and positive stress. I, I So here's the thing. What, um, what they did with the soundtrack for Celeste, um, uh, Lena, if I'm not mistaken, uh, no. Lena Rains, they... So actually, so my part of my research for this, since I've not, I have not played Celeste. For all of our listeners out there, I have not played Celeste, but I'm going to now because they not only did they make it, they, not only did they convince me, um, I actually went and listened to the music for it because they have it on YouTube or at least some pieces of it anyway. And positive stress was is something. I wish more game creators were were aware of this when I was playing games when I was younger. Because I'm sure, or maybe I just have anger issues. Um, but everyone probably at one point threw like their game controller on the ground when they got to a level that was just like so stressful, and the music would give me extreme anxiety, and I would get even more and more frustrated as time went on. Um, so positive stress, where it's pushing you towards the goal of the game, what you want to accomplish, without like, you know, having you break your TV, is kind of great. Um, 
and how they utilize that for the game, especially since the game, as as you were going as, going in as well, it's a game about anxiety. And all the characters are going through, are have their their quirks and their isms that either trigger them or get them out of their comfort zone to to trigger their anxiety. So the use of positive stress, the use of its of this game's soundtrack to capitalize on that, but also not make the gamer go insane was brilliant. Yeah, Brandon, what do you think? Yeah, I think this actually reminds me of like the second thing I ever wrote for Central Sauce, um, which was probably like three or four years ago. So maybe don't go read it. Don't know how well it holds up. Um, but I, I wrote this piece. About no, everyone how... go read it. Everyone go read it right now. <laughs> I'm going to go read it right now. I wrote this piece about like how stress is used in music, like um, by comparing <laughs> Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon to Flying Lotus's You're Dead and Childish Gambino's um, the his most recent album, the one that's like 3, 15, 20 or something. It's like a date. And how I think Pink Floyd's the best example of it. And this oh, is what man. they do in Celeste. They they build stress in the, in the music, in the sound to relieve stress with a very like relaxing melodic sound and so the reason that that's done too is because the best feelings in the world are not just a perpetual state of calmness and happiness the best feelings in the world are immediately what comes after panic right the best feeling in the world is relief it's you know waking up from a horrifying nightmare and being like Oh my gosh, shit, like that was just a dream. Like that feels better than a perpetual state of calmness. And I think Celeste really uses that and, and sort of like crafts that around how they want the player to respond to the environment. Um, and the best example of that really is sort of like the centerpiece of this video. Um, Ryan, you've actually played the game. I have not. You might be able to explain this a little bit better. But um, the character is riding in a lift that is taking them like, like a ski lift type thing that's taking them from one platform to another. Um, and halfway along, you know, that starts like shaking in the wind and it stops and the music gets really, really frantic. Um, the visualizations on the screen even start to kind of like close in. Uh, the listeners can't see all the dramatic hand motions I'm making right now, but I promise they're very elaborate. Um, there are a lot. That's like one that's right <laughs> So the like the the screen and the music and all these things, they start to close in and feel very, very claustrophobic. And these this is all generated through like effects, right, to reflect the character's anxiety. Um, and then the game presents you with this little mini game that is literally like a tool that you can use to calm and address your anxiety. Um, and it's to sort of breathe in and out as this feather floats up and down, like breathing in and out in time with the floating feather. And you have to like move a little box to sort of keep the feather in it, which is a mechanic that then makes you focus on the breathing in and out. And so much of like what actual meditation is, is literally rhythm. You know, it's trying to sink your body to a rhythm, uh, whether subconsciously or intentionally. And so the game literally creates a stressful environment just to take you out of it, right? And then, it, you know, when you get that feeling of like the screen slowly comes back into focus, the music shifts from this frantic chaos to this calming, relaxing thing, and you have found yourself already like, you know, breathing in and out, like you've calmed yourself down. And nothing really in, like, nothing in the character's immediate environment has changed other than the effects on the screen, which is representative of how anxiety, when you're in it, feels so intense and so 
all-consuming, but then, you know, once you're able to relax and focus and calm down, like, nothing in your immediate environment has actually changed, even though it feels so different, and that's primarily told through music here. Yeah. I know, Brandon, that you were never going to play the game because you don't like, like, hardcore platforms, but one big reservation was, like, about bringing this piece is that part of it, because that moment when it when I first played the game and I got to that bit, easy a top five moment in gaming for me. Because it's not even the game. Like <laughs> it's not even the game. But what it does do, it invests you in the stakes of the character and it makes getting to the top of this mountain the most important thing in your entire life right now. <laughs> and oh man, it's the most it is just absolutely gorgeous. Because of all those that what um Game Score Fanfare talks about with the music, the way it takes Madeline's theme, which is um a quite hesitant, not fully altogether theme, and then lays really intense synth and Madeline being the main character of the game, by the way, her theme in the game. They take that theme and build on it with these really intense synths that just feel like weight on your shoulders. And if you understand what anxiety's like. If you ever had a panic attack in your life, it feels like your brain is made of concrete and that you're cla- it's a claustrophobic feeling, right? And it just feels like you can't think your way out of this. And what the game does by taking you out of the main mechanics of the game and making you just press the A button just to lift up this frame to put a, uh, a feather in it and then letting go of the A button... And then pressing the A button, then letting the go of the A button. It teaches you how to breathe through the panic attack. Like the pressure on the A button is your breath in and the pressure off the A button is your breath out. It's just genius on so many levels. And the way that the music reflects that is, again, it's absolutely brilliant. And it is like the feeling of coming down from an anxiety attack of relief, like you said, Brandon. And as someone who edited that... Pink Floyd, Charge Gambino piece. <laughs> I will say it was not that long ago, and it's really good. It just feels like a long time ago because yeah, I published something on Central Source for a really long time. Feels like it was forever ago, and I, yeah, but like like and the way you describe like that feather thing is really like it see it's a, a lot of like there's a think piece in here somewhere about comparing playing video games to meditation, um, being that they make you super super present and focused. And it's one of the reasons that I do like particularly difficult games um, like Dark Souls, the Monster Hunter games, you know, stuff like that. And it's because you can tell like when you've got a lot going on in your head and you sit down to play a game like this and you're thinking about other things or you're distracted, you're just out there getting your ass kicked, right? Like in order to really be successful in some of these very difficult games, you have to sit and sort of remove everything from your mind other than the rhythm of the game. And so much of that is driven by game music. Um, and again, you know, I haven't played Celeste. I have played other platformers. And it's funny how much of platforming is like you, like your control inputs are not like, they don't impact the pace of the music, but you will find yourself and the rhythm that you play the game being impacted by the music, especially when it's something I'm not sure what the format of Celeste is, but a lot of these platformers um, are very, very fast. Like a second that you make an error and your character dies, you just kind of go right back to the start 
and you can start again. So you get into this very repetitive rhythm of Metroid is like that, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You get into this very repetitive rhythm of doing the thing again. Oh, you fucked up. Go back. Do the thing again. Got through that thing. Oh, fucked up. You go back. And, and the music really drives that like rhythmic focus that makes you super present. Um, yeah. Metroid is a funny one to bring up because when we were talking about the ideas of eustress and distress, one of the things that um, Games Call Fanfare brings up is that eustress comes from the challenge having a clear end goal. Like in Celeste, there's an entrance to the room and there's an exit from the room. You have to find your way to the exit. Mm-hmm. That's it. And I think Brandon and I had this conversation before where like, I love Metroid games, but Metroidvanias don't sit with me very well <laughs> because I need a place to go. Like I need to know yeah. where to go next. For some reason, Breath of the Wild, I'm fine with it. Open world, I get it. Metroid itself... Love it. Love Zero Mission. Love Super Metroid. Love Metroid Dread. Uh, <laughs> Hollow Knight? Couldn't do it. Ori? Got lost. <laughs> Got annoyed. Couldn't do it. You know? Like, <laughs> and I want to go, I want to like this game so badly, but the distress is just too high for me. The balance isn't there for me. I need some more eustress where I have a clear goal and I know what I'm trying to do. Sometimes in Hollow Knight, I'll complete like a tricky platforming bit and there'll just be nothing at the end of it and I'll just turn around. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's distress, man. That's too annoying. Like, but, I can't But the use the eustress comes when you make friends with the little bugs and they're like, <laughs> just like, hey, I don't get what are you doing? Man. What are you doing down here, little guy? How'd you get I die here? too often. I lose my money and I can't buy any upgrades. <laughs> oh man, I, I, it's like I don't know. It's like I'm actually very much so about the. I, I'm probably more so on Brandon's side. I I love the games where I kind of like have like that. I was like I like a good platformer too. Love a good platformer. The good uh, old Mega Man X games, old Mega Man stuff, all for me. But I also love, especially as someone who likes Pokemon especially with the new ones coming out, it's going to be open world. It's going to be, and you're going to even have three options of missions to go on, not just the gym leaders. You're going to have a lot of stuff to do. So I think that's like to not have a clear goal in mind and just like also to like get the use stress from like, you know, little, from little things that are like, you say clear, um, clear points. Right. I don't know. I just, I kind of like, I kind of like both. I like the mixture, right? Clear goal, but also do whatever you want. Do it, do whatever you want. Um, the video does a good job of setting up those two two different things, right? That there are some games where the soundtrack drives just entire you stress. Um, Minecraft, well, I, I guess caves are stressful in Minecraft. I'm gonna get shit on by the Minecraft fanboys for saying it's relaxing, but um, I'm you. <laughs> sandbox, sandboxy type games, you know, they so have that very Sims, yeah. ambient. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, guys, I want to end this segment on just asking you. Before we move on to our last and final article slash video essay from our wonderful Brandon, what is the most stressful game you have ever played? Or even or you can even say sequence in a game. I thought I was going to have a heart attack one time playing Dark Souls 3. Like I literally had to walk <laughs> outside and put my hands above my head. And it was when I finally beat um, my my fellow Dark Souls fans are, are going to relate to this. When I finally beat the Nameless King in Dark Souls 3, who's like this hidden boss, super difficult. Um, when I finally beat the fucking thing, I literally like had to walk outside and like put my hands like my heart was beating so fast. Like it was like not healthy. 
have a couple. Right. I have a couple. Um, and it's very clear that like my gaming life has been defined by Nintendo. But um, so <laughs> there was a game on the DS called Wario Masters of Disguise. Do you guys know this game? It's a deep cut. I do not. It's a deep cut game. Mask, Mask of Disguise. Yeah, man. So like, oh man, I I was deep in the DS library to be fair, but that game was really cool. But there was one section I don't even remember what you had to do. It was so long ago. I was a child. But I don't even know what you had to do. But it was so hard to be. I could just could not figure it out as a child. And the main memory of that game is just pure hatred. Like, <laughs> like I really, really hate that shit. Just because I had no idea what to do. Um, I've never played a Dark Souls game, and I'm pretty sure I should never play a Dark Souls game because I'm like I'm bad at games. I'm be honest. I'm bad at games. I like easy games, but there's a, there's a post game thing in super mario odyssey called the, i think it's the darkest or darker side of the moon and it's just one long basically 20 minute platforming challenge and if you die you go straight back to the start and you don't even go back to the start you go to outside the thing like you have to yeah you have to get to the place to start every time you die and it's rough it's like you appreciate it because it's the most incredible game design. It takes all the mechanics you learn in the game so far in a beautiful way, puts them all in sequence. But it's so hard. <laughs> like it's so hard. Um, when I did finally beat it though, and it was it was triumphant. It was it was great. I milked it. You know, like I got to the final bit. I was taking slow steps, just like pretending there was a victory lap around me. It was wonderful. <laughs> Man. Jeez, okay, I hope I'm, I'll never play that crap either. <laughs> but what mine is going to be probably unexpected, but it was one of the first video games I remember playing as a kid um, at my dad's house. It was Tekken 3. And when I got to the end, which also they just based an uh, anime series on on Netflix called Tekken Bloodlines, but it's where at the end where I'm playing with Jin and you have to be Ogre. That mfer hate him i lost you can, you can him. cuss on the podcast tyler i know i'm trying but I'm, it's, since he was just from my nintendo i was trying to keep it pg <laughs> but i was like for the love of god man i was like why does like it's like you initially beat ogre and then he gets his second form which is even more ugly which honestly gave oh me nightmares god. as a child I was like, bro, first of all, I was like, one, I can't beat him. Two, he's kicking my ass over and over again. I don't think I beat him until I was in the third grade. And I started playing it when I was in the first grade. So it was a terrible experience. But I, when I finally beat that god dang ugly green bastard, it, it made my life so much better. So much better. That actually reminded me of... I, and I've, I've got to tell this one now. That reminded me of the, the best second health bar experience ever created in games is in fucking um, Sekiro. So if you don't want spoilers, fast forward because this is like a massive... I would not want to ruin this for anyone who actually wants to play the game. But there... So the Sekiro's level design is sort of... There's always like parallel paths and the difficulty sort of alternates between the two. But they never make it super obvious like which one you're supposed to be doing. So you kind of like go down one path... Until you're like, holy shit, I've been getting my ass whooped for two hours. Like, I'm going to go try the other one. 
Um, and one of the bosses on one of those paths is called Guardian Ape. And it's this giant fucking monkey, right? Who's got like a big old sword like stuck through his neck. Like someone was like clearly fighting this monkey. And this goddamn thing is so hard that you continually like go back to that path over and over again. Like still can't do it. Go back to the other one. Go back. Still can't do it. Whatever. Like you do, do this back and forth with this thing so many times. And then you finally kill it by like jumping on its neck and like pulling the sword all the way through. Like severing the, the thing's head. And then you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, like I finally, finally fucking beat it. And then the motherfucker gets back up and picks up its own head <laughs> off the fucking, off the fucking ground and grabs the nope. sword that you just like severed its neck off with. And now you have to fight it headless and with a giant sword. And it was the biggest, like craziest, like second health bar boss moment ever because of the level design encouraging you to have this sort of like gameplay back and forth with it. And you're like, you think you finally beat it and then it's got a whole nother thing. Sekiro is yeah. a FromSoft game, right? Yeah, it's the it's very different than the, than the rest of them. It's more of a sort of an action RPG as opposed to oh, like cool. a traditional RPG. Is it a um, Lovely. PlayStation exclusive? No, it's on Xbox too. Is it? Okay. The only PlayStation exclusive one. one is is Bloodborne. Sekiro is Sekiro much more like gives you clearly defined rules to play the game within okay. and then you have to learn those rules um, whereas Dark Souls is much more kind of free form and just yeah shit but yeah as we set our camp down on <laughs> this particular video essay we say goodbye to the anxiety of Celeste and its music by Game Score Fanfare our first double feature by a artist or you would say uh, author of something. <laughs> and lastly, we move to a great piece that will go on for way too long. We love you, Charlie, for being for being our editor. <laughs> thank, th we thank you, group leader. Uh, storytelling through music in Hollow Knight by 8-Bit Music Theory. Brandon, take it away, my guy. Shuffles papers. Um, where's the sound bite? I need the sound bite right there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So before I get into this video, I'm, I'm going to just give you a quick rundown of like the bit of Hollow Knight lore that is important to understanding the context of this video. We're sorry, and that Charlie. Is basically, so in the beginning. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> so in, in the beginning, the world, like Hollow Knight is a game where the characters are all like bugs or fungus or some form of, you know, little critters. Um, and in the beginning, the world is exactly like as you would imagine, like a world full of bugs is. They all are, you know, they function on instinct. They're like animals, you know, they kind of just do their thing. And then um, <clears throat> one of the main characters of the game, the Pale King, basically comes into this world and he brings with him um, souls, sentience. Like he starts giving sentience out to the bugs. And different like communities of bugs respond to this in very different ways. Um, and this is all sort of, I'll get there, but this is all sort of like an analogy for how humans respond to fascism and different forms of fascism. For example, like one of the communities that exist are like little mushroom people. And because they're mushrooms, they're fungus, they share the same consciousness. They're super like, yeah, let's do it. Like, let's, let's do fascism. Like, I'm, I'm in for this. 
Um, and the, the king's his sort of like what he wants in return for bringing sentience and individuality to the world is to be worshipped, right? So this, this society starts to build um, from the wilderness, like from the, the chaos of just bugs running around. A society starts to build that is all about like, you know, worshipping the, the king, like expanding his vision, like creating society. Um, and it's very, very self-centric, right? Like once, once you introduce individuality and you give individual identity to beings that had no individual identity for the first time they start to care about their own personal life outcome right so this naturally resorts resorts in um a very like capitalist system with the top of the capitalist system being the king and then you know if you're the the second hierarchy of you know, people, you've done enough, you've given enough worship to the king, you know, you're in the second hierarchy. Um, and at the bottom of the hierarchy, you know, you have like uh, the working class bugs and stuff like that. So it creates this very hierarchical system. And throughout the game, you're coming into this world as it has been decayed and destroyed. And you're sort of learning these things and you're talking to the people. And because these bugs now have sentience, a lot of them, they talk about the king, you know, they've been living in this system. They talk about the king as if he's a god. Right they're you know, they, they worship him. They built these massive, massive statues to him and everything. So throughout the game, like you constantly get this referred to this character um, as if he's a deity, as if he's some, you know, massive, massive God in this world, basically. And that that's sort of the setup that you need to understand um, how the music relates to that storytelling. So uh, the the video here in question um really does a good job of breaking down like the mechanical function of the music and of the, the subject we talked about that was light motif um, by showing you like the written form of the melody and then playing the ways that it's been altered to indicate different pieces of storytelling because the game's story is really put together by picking up on these clues, right? You never see the pale king until the very end. You only hear about him through how other people talk about him, through, you know, clues that you gather throughout the environment. Um, and the author of the video, he pulls apart the music. Okay, so at the start of the mel at the start of the video, there is a poem. And at the start of the game, you don't know, you don't have any context for what the poem is about, but the, there's a melody that plays to the poem. And then later, like as you start to put together the clues, you realize that this poem is actually about the Pale King. And then you start to notice like, oh, this melody is not just a random soundtrack to the game. This melody starts to pop up when things are related to the Pale King. And the alterations to the melody are um, indicative of like the relationship to the Pale King that that particular character or environment has to it. So... Um, once you recognize who the poem is about, you start to realize how intentionally the melody is used. And the author goes into a few examples of how the melody doesn't just draw a connection, but subconsciously tells the player how they should feel about the connection. For example, when you enter the Pale King's palace, um, which was literally ripped from the current dimension in the game into like this separate dimension as an effort to like preserve his empire as it's decaying, um, you know, you enter this, this palace and you are this moment has been building up throughout the game. Like you're going to meet the pale King, you know, you've gone in this other dimension where his palace is. Um, 
so the the direct storytelling up until this point has has left you expecting to find some grand and glorious god at the end of this platforming challenge and that's built up you know like i said as the characters characterize the king as these lore clues come together um and you don't find out until the very end of this platforming challenge that the king has slowly decayed away sitting in his palace as he separated himself from his empire and not only that but he looks nothing like the massive statues that have been erected to worship him you know he's a skinny little bug with a with a little crown on but the music actually imposes this idea and feeling much earlier on than the direct storytelling mechanics of the game um, the author of the video describes the the soundtrack to the pale king's palace which is a um, alteration on his original theme that pops up throughout the game. Um, the author of the video describes it as mausoleum-like, and it actually shows, he breaks down how the melody is taken, slowed down, and stretched out, and given a darker feel. And in this way, the music throughout this platforming exercise is almost contradictory to the player's expectations. You know, you enter the palace and you're expecting to meet this god and you have this grand orchestral soundtrack um, that actually hints at telling you that this place is dead. The people, the empire that was here has decayed under its own weight and, you know, it, it's not here anymore. So what, what did you guys think about how the author went about, you know, using some of the music theory to like pull apart these story details and like how it was presented. First of all, I want to thank you for leaving us with things to say. <laughs> I really, really appreciate that. I uh, also just love how much you love Hollow Knight. Like, I genuinely believe Dude, you the could do a seminar is, so on it. is so it your favorite piece of art? Um, I mean, it's up there. It's easily up there. It's easily like one of my top five games. Like, hmm. easily. I'm about to play it. I'll, I'll play it on like Ryan. <laughs> it's the the way the story building is done is is what's amazing because it's story building that can only be done by a game, right? Like you can't have a movie that makes you because a movie you have a you have a frame, right? You have a box, and everything that you need to know is presented through that square. You can't leave things like off screen that hint that you have to like put together like i mean you kind of can but you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah. the movie is presented you personally can't go experience. in and pick up that item and think oh what does this mean you know yeah 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 um yeah and i think like, like a metroidvania is like the perfect um genre for that like just the way you upgrade and the way you uh retrace your steps and things like that i just need to watch someone play it instead of play it myself because i tried i tried um <laughs> Um, no, but I think it was an inevitability that we'd bring 8-Bit Theory to the podcast at some point. I don't think we covered his work before. Um, because the way he ties in music theory, it always makes me wonder, like, if someone's watching this who knows music theory, do they think he's talking down? Do they think he's dumbing it down? Or are they engaged too, you know? Because as someone who does not get music theory, it's incredible to me because I just learn so much. Um, and he, he makes it palatable for someone who is an outsider to quite a, what can be quite a dense 
world essentially so i do make it does make me wonder like if you know music theory do you watch his videos and think ah oh, they're dumbing it he's dumbing it down a bit or is it is it is it proper um but regardless he always does a good job of balancing it and just making it about the art and the story first um the way he explains the story you know it's a 12 minute video Brandon explained a lot of the law, but a skill based <laughs> video he did a bit theory, he did not need to explain all that law, right? It helps. <laughs> it helps it helps now that Brandon said it. But for the purposes of the video, the way that he explains it, the way he just gets the entry point, is really cool. Because he does it through music. He does it by showing you the poem and then the music of the poem. And then by showing you, was it the white lady? Yeah. Showing you that scene and the music of that scene. And even without playing the game, even without the lore dump, I get it, you know? And I think that's such a genius way to tie together something so dense or something that needs so much explanation with just the music. And I think that's why he's just so good at that. It yeah, was and, and- so... He adds to it how, like, one of the reasons why games like this um, and games like Dark Souls become such cult classics is because how much the community is has to put the story together themselves um, and talk about these pieces and stuff like that. And really, like, how intricately these clues and details are laid out, this video is a great example of because the music of the game actually becomes one of the most substantial pieces of evidence to draw you to certain conclusions about the plot. Um, and the character that Ryan mentions, the white lady, um, <clears throat> the music is one of the most driving themes that's like, oh, this was at one point like the queen. At one point, this was the wife of the pale king. And you only really sort of draw that conclusion through the connection to the pale king's theme and then other like very subtle environmental cues. You know, it's never really like, told to you so the fact that this video exists where someone breaks down that music you know that's a contribution to this whole network of community discussion that really like pulls these kinds of narratives and clues together and even like a lot of the the plot points i kind of discussed is like a pretty general overview you can get into more specifics and the more specific you get you know the more conjecture is involved you know it's less um like, oh, this is exactly what's happening in the game. And like, well, this is how I kind of interpreted that and how I kind of put these things together to form a narrative. Yeah, yeah. I, I will, <laughs> here's the thing. Honestly, I'm, I'm going to tell Brandon at some point he needs to write a whole entire thesis about a good, maybe good 20-page paper on uh, Hollow Knight. <laughs> Bro, somebody <laughs> already did. Has, I'll send you the link. <laughs> this, this man has the information. But um, back to the video essay real quick. Um, and... I guess my thoughts on it, since we're running a little bit low on time, um, I th- I thought was some something that he got across really well, that I thought was kind of cool and and he put and he put very eloquently, was there are sometimes that music and games can be there. They can have the melodies. They can have, they can be memorable soundtracks to our lives later in life, but for this particular game, the story was told almost through the music that's being that's being incorporated inside the game as well and the way he described that and and also he was able, the way he was able to break down each piece 
like when I was looking at the, I actually had to look at the video as to like, uh, he had the, piece, the pieces of music up and how they were put together and how it sounded and how it told the story as well. Just as much as like the pictures or the voice actor, whatever it may be, was in the game as well. The music was a key character in it. And I thought that was brilliant. Because um, a lot of games, you could argue for the same things, even music-based games. Guitar, Guitar Hero isn't going to tell a story like this, man. <laughs> it's not going to tell a story <laughs> like Hollow Knight. Um, not, through, not through music the way that it did. And I thought 8-Bit did a fantastic job with that. And one thing that really makes this like a super accessible example of this too is that all the original scores for the game were originally scored and written on piano purely. Um, so that makes it very easy to like boil these um, soundtracks down into very visual like written pieces of music. You know, you don't have to pull out a whole orchestra's worth of like, here's what the violin's playing, here's what the trumpeters are doing, you know, here's the guy on the cello. Like, you can boil it down into its most basic components pretty easily. Um, and I think it makes it very easy to like understand and draw conclusions to like, or draw the viewer's attention to like the direct thing that you want to talk about. Yeah, and links to the idea of a leitmotif and to melody and all those things, yeah. And I like, I also like how music is often used in this game to like, con like I talked about, like contradict the player's expectations. Um, and that's also a theme that pops up a lot in Dark Souls, which is very similar style of game where you have to piece together a lot of the clues. Um, Dark Souls a lot of times will like hype up particular characters that you're going to meet. And then when you meet the character, um, their appearance as, you know, some giant monster or some, you know, crazy, powerful, like knight of some kind, their appearance often contradicts the soundtracks, which the soundtracks are often very, very, very sad and very gloomy and very melancholy. And they're meant to hint that like this character who has been built up to be this very powerful, very regal figure, you know, has deteriorated. And like you are experiencing the death of this world. You're experiencing the death of legend, right? Um, and Hollow Knight even does that in reverse, actually. And there's an example of that in the video where you tie the Pale, the Pale King's melody to the female character. I guess, actually, there's a debate. I think the they're non-binary. Um, but they tie it to Hornet, who is not ever explicitly stated again to be the Pale King's daughter. But when you pull the melody apart and you kept, you see how the Pale King's melody is intertwined with Hornet's theme, which is this very, very adventurous and energetic thing, it also shows you that like among this dead, dying world full of legends, like there are still pockets of life, right? And that that is strong characterization. You know, it shows how a certain certain characters respond to the decay around them by like vibrant and energetic stands out among this environment any other points no i was actually gonna let ryan go real quick uh before oh. we closed out guys i think brandon said anything that i would have said of <laughs> same no. i kind of like got i kind of got my stuff off as well i think this was very much so especially 
Brandon and his love for Hollow Knight. But at the same time, though, it, I, I want to say more than anything else as we close this um, this piece out as well. 8-Bit Music Theory did a fantastic job as someone who not only made me excited to play the game when I finally do purchase, purchase it, but also gave a general understanding for any not only just new viewer of his channel, new uh, new viewer of excuse me of hollow knight and made them interact with the musical aspect of it and that's what we're here to talk about VG, um, video game music um so a big music a big music theory we thank you um brandon i know it's uh, it's tempting it's tempting but i'm i'll still ask because you're my boy is there any last point you want to get out before we close out my friend lots <laughs> all right lots but we, we don't need yeah, we don't need to go, go there on we don't, an, we don't hour, an hour rant um, yeah, I, I don't know how much time you got after we get off mic, but um, if you want to talk Hollow Knight lore, um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, get into, we'll get into it off mic. Um, <laughs> but he, she's, they's are wonderful listeners um, of In Search of Sauce. This has been VGM episode three. Um, but to quickly recap the articles we had today from front to back were what happened to memorable game music by game score fanfare the anxiety of celeste and its music by game score fanfare and last but not least our magnum opus for the day <laughs> storytelling through music in hollow knight by eight bit music theory we just want to once again call for all of our independent writers please send us your work we some like just not so we don't you know duplicate on authors sometimes, but also we would love we would also just would love to hear from you guys. Maybe the next thing we're covering on the podcast is something you have written. Peace out, guys. This has been VGM episode three. See you later, guys. See you guys. Thanks for listening. This episode of In Search of Source features Ryan Gore, Brandon Hill, and Tyler Jones of the Sense Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Tyler Taylor, the Fifth End Podcast Network. Music for the shows. Fuck stop by Thanks to Chill Music for the bits of use. This has been the Central Source and Fifth End Podcast Network production. Links for Barsty, Chill Music, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content coming the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.